We're making our way through books of the Bible primarily here, and we landed on Colossians. We're in chapter 1, looking at this hymn that Paul inserts into his letter. It's verses 15 through 20. So if you would find your way there in your Bible, if you don't have one, the Pew Bible in front of you, page 983. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, 15 through 20, and then chapter 2, 16 through 19. Chapter 1, 15 through 20, chapter 2, 16 through 19. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. you lived in Winston-Salem, like I did, you couldn't wait for the Dixie Classic Fair. It was a lot better than the little rinky-dink fair we have here. It was the Dixie Classic Fair. And I loved everything about the fair. I still love everything about the fair. The rides, the livestock, you know, who won the blue ribbon for the pie or the squash. I just, I loved it. And especially at the end, the funnel cakes, you know, those all, I just loved everything about the fair. And so when the Dixie Classic Fair came around, I just couldn't wait to go to the Dixie Classic Fair. And so one year I went, and of course I did all the things that I just talked about. But you know, at every fair, whether it's a rinky-dink fair like we have or the Dixie Classic or anywhere else, not only are, do they have the funnel cakes and the rides and the livestock, they have the sideshows. And usually the sideshows are, you know, unusual people or unusual animals. And honestly, they never really held much of an appeal to me. I could easily walk by as sort of the salesman was out front trying to give you, trying to give you a chance to give up two of your dollars to see this strange phenomenon behind the curtain. Until one year I was there and the, the advertisement was the headless woman. This woman had no head, but she was still alive, and for $2, you could step behind the curtain and see her. 
Now, the fact that that intrigued me might give you a little clue as to my emotional maturity level at that point. But I gave up my $2 and I stepped inside the tent. And inside the tent was a stage that had a curtain on it. And when they got enough fools, or I mean people, to inside the tent, they went on about a long story about this woman who had worked for the fair, and she had been called home, and in order to sort of catch up the fair, she took this midnight train back to the fair, and the train derailed, and she lost her head. Fortunately, there was a nearby medical team that was able to keep this woman alive. And so she still traveled around with the fair, even though she didn't have a head. And then they had a warning about if you were pregnant or if you had heart conditions. And then they pulled back the curtain. And the best way to describe it would be like a a middle school science fair project gone bad. It, It was a mannequin sitting in a chair who had no head. And the mannequin was obviously attached to some kind of machinery that was making the mannequin move very mechanically. And then there were some tubes kind of coming from the neck area into these containers, and they had little fluids or lights going through the tubes as if this was nourishing and keeping this woman uniquely alive, even though she didn't have a head. And honestly, when when they opened it, it was just... My first thought was, I'm embarrassed to be in here. I mean, and that's hard when you're in high school. You know, I'm, I'm looking around like, oh, my gosh, this is so stupid. I'm a little embarrassed to even say it right now. But, but it's so ridiculous because there's no way a body can live without a head. That's just not possible. And really, essentially, that's what Paul is saying in this particular text in verse 18, is that the church is a body and it has a head and its body, the church, can't function if Jesus Christ isn't the head. If Jesus Christ in any way gets severed from the church, the church no longer functions. It just becomes something else. Jesus alone is the authority. He's the head. And as we look at these verses, we we remember that this is in the context of this great hymn that Paul first wants to remind us that Jesus is supreme over everything. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him. Whether you can see him or not, whether they're in heaven or not, whatever kind of powers they are, everything is created for him. He holds all things together. So he's supreme over all creation. And then verse 18, he's also supreme over this new creation, the church. This morning, I just want to look at this one verse, verse 18, where, where Paul is trying to emphasize this supremacy, this headship, this authority of Jesus over the church. Christ is head of the church. First of all, I want to just look at this word church briefly. The word church comes from really a fun Greek word. It's called ekklesia. Ecclesia, and it's two words put together, ek, E-K, that means out, and kaleo means to call. So the, the church is the called out ones. And when every New Testament writer uses the word church, 
almost certainly they have an Old Testament picture in mind. That this church, this new assembly, they're going to be the ecclesia. They're going to be the called out ones. And the Old Testament picture they have in their mind is in from Exodus. Jesus or God called out a specific group of people, the Hebrew people, to Mount Sinai to be his people. They're the called out ones. They've been called out of this slavery. They've been called out of this idolatry. They've been called out of this spiritual darkness that they've been trapped in for 400 years in Egypt. And they're called out and they're called out into this particular place, Mount Sinai. And God's going to meet them there and he's going to deliver the word of the Lord. He's going to deliver these Ten Commandments and other laws that's going to help then direct the people to, to how to live. See, they've been living in this darkness. They've been living in this foreign culture and they've been called out into this new one. And now God says, I need you to know how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I'm going to lay down this new law so that you know how to follow after me. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Colossians. Epaphras, if you remember him, he has heard the gospel. He's gone back to his hometown in Colossae, and he's been the proclaimer of the gospel. And by God's grace, some people have heard, and they formed the called out ones. They formed a little church in Colossae. And now they're trying to figure out, well, how do we live? Chapter 1, verse 6, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, they've been called out, and now they have to say, how do we live? And Paul is saying, well, you live according to the obedience or the authority of Christ. And this requires putting off and putting on new ways. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Before in this section, it talks about things that we have to to do. But verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10, and you've put on the new self. So you see what's happening. Paul's getting to this place saying, hey, you you folks in Colossae, you've been the called out ones. You're this new assembly in this town and you've been called out of a spiritual darkness, an idolatrous situation, whatever they may have been captured by. They're in this new place and now they need to know how to live. And Paul basically is saying you just need a total wardrobe exchange. You need to to take some things out of your wardrobe and and cast them out. And you need to put some new things in. You need an extreme makeover when you meet Christ. And he's the authority. He's the one who's going to help us know what to take off and what to put on. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about living for the obedience of Christ. The, The word might be called sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy theological word that just means taking off old things and putting on new things. We're in that process of now learning how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it's probably important to note right here that the called out ones have been called out of sin, not out of the world. As the church, we're called out of sin. We're not called out of the world. We've been called out to live separately from our sin, but not separately from our society. 
We know that from two ways, more than two ways. But you know it from the Old Testament, just the people that have been called out of out of Egypt. They get called into Israel. And Israel is like a land bridge, if you can think geographically. It's this little land bridge between the two great world powers, Assyria and Egypt. And Assyria and Egypt are either having commerce with each other or war with each other. But no matter what it is, they're always traveling across this one little land bridge, Israel, the people of God. So God could have called his people and said, hey, go live on this little island out in the Mediterranean called Cyprus. That way, nobody's going to have any intersection with you. Or you can live right squeezed in the middle of these two giant world powers. Why? Because I want the whole world to know about me. And I'm going to squeeze you right in the middle of the darkest places of the most powerful world forces so that when people intersect you, they see me. That's why God chose that little piece of geography at that particular time. Well, we know it from the Old Testament. We know it from the New Testament. When Jesus says this in in John 17, he prays for his people and he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, while you're in the world, church, we're we're not trying to separate ourselves. We're not trying to build walls around here. So only we're in. We're trying to say we want to live in the middle of these powerful uh, spiritual societal forces so that the way when they come across us as individuals or they come across us as a church, they get a sense of who Jesus Christ is. So God's very strategic about how he places his people now, when we get to chapter 3, we'll talk some more specifics about putting on and putting off things. But it may be worthwhile to just ask yourself right now, if you consider yourself as part of the called out ones, if you consider yourself as part of the church, what, what might need to be taken out of your wardrobe today? What's something that's of your old life that, you know, I just I got to get rid of that. It seemed functional, it seemed useful, provided something for me, but I don't I, I, God provides that now. So I need to take that out. What do you need to put in? What kind of practice, what kind of habit, what kind of activity do you need to put into your wardrobe? Christ is head of the called out ones. The church. Second, Christ is head of this church. How are these called out people going to live? Well, they're a body and and we need a head. We need an authority. We need somebody who can see for us. We need somebody who can provide information to the body. We need somebody who can provide direction to us. And man, we should be thankful. We should be so thankful that the one who has authority over all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and in him all things hold together. This same person who has authority over all creation, he's the one that God has provided to his body to have authority over us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, God placed all things under his feet and appointed to him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. 
So Jesus is the head of the church. He alone is, has authority. Without him, the church can't survive. A, a human can't survive without a head. The church can't survive without Christ. And, and the fact that Jesus Christ is the authority of the church is so incredibly healthy, yet very difficult to swallow, I think. I think the truth that Jesus Christ is the sole authority of the church, he is the head, is so, so healthy, but hard to swallow. And when I wrote that down, the, the picture I tried to, that I was trying to think in my mind, how do I, how do I picture it's healthy but hard to swallow? was I remembered when my wife was pregnant, Nancy, and they, the first, first thing to do when you go to the, to the doctor and say your health, they give you these prenatal vitamins. Now, maybe they're different now, because this was 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, the prenatal vitamins that Nancy had about the size of my fist. And they come in a tub. And so I would, you know, take the top off, and I would grab this tub and dump out one pill, you know, and say, Nancy, you got to swallow this thing. This is for the kid, you know. And the doctor says it's incredibly healthy. But she's like, Paul, it's like your fist. I can't, you know, so hard to swallow. I know it's going to be good for me. I know it's going to be good for my child, but it's so big. It's so hard to swallow. I don't know if I can get it down. And when I think about Christ being the head of the church, that was sort of the picture I had. So healthy, so hard to swallow, so so healthy. The primary reason it's so healthy that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus Christ is the head is because Jesus knows all things. He holds all things together. He created all things. It, it's so healthy to have him as our head because he knows exactly what he's doing. He's uniquely qualified to, to have the authority because he's uniquely trustworthy. Therefore, and this is an important therefore, because that's true, he holds all things together. He knows all things. He's uniquely qualified to be the authority. Therefore, even if Jesus leads his body into a world that puts it to death, we can trust him. So you have to have that first part solidly down. That Jesus Christ knows everything. That Jesus Christ holds everything together. And if he does, if he chooses to lead parts of his body into places or parts of the world that then put them to death, we can still say we can trust him. This was a very real threat for the people at Colossae. This is a very real threat for some people today. To say or claim that you're a Christian might cause your own death. And at that point, you have to trust that the king, that the head, he knows what he's doing. See, just a few years after this letter was written, in a nearby town, in one of these other suburb towns of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is the main city, and there's all these little suburb towns. One of them's Colossae. Another one in a nearby town called Smyrna. There was a lead pastor. His name was Polycarp. 
he was taken to an arena and told to recant his Christian beliefs. And if he didn't, he would be put to death. And here is his famous statements. Statement, for 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned Polycarp at the stake in the arena. See, you have to really, really trust that God knows what he's doing. Because he might be sending you or me or the church into some hostile position, some hostile territory, and not everybody's going to make it out. I was listening a couple days ago to an interview with a pastor today in a local church in Smyrna. 2,000 years now later. Smyrna is in Turkey, Turkey, relatively hostile to Christianity. This man was a Muslim, became a Christian, and now is a pastor of a very small church in Smyrna. Just trying to keep the little flame there. He was arrested, beaten, for converting from Islam to Christianity. Beaten for trusting in Jesus as his authority rather than Muhammad. And as the police pressed him to renounce Christianity, this is what he said in the interview. All I could remember was Polycarp. That 2,000 years ago, he stood in the same city and he trusted his king. So we have to say, God knows exactly what he's doing, even if we don't. We can trust him. See, because it says in verse 18, he's the beginning. He's not the end. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Meaning, if you are put to death for your faith, you're going to be born into Christ forever. So not only is Christ supreme over your life, he's supreme over your death. There's only one person who has supremacy over your death. It's the one person who rose from the dead and conquered the death. And that's Jesus Christ. So you can trust in this person even if your life ends in death because he's conquered that very thing for you and then you will live forever with him. So it's so healthy to have this kind of person as the head, as the authority in the church. Jesus makes a promise in another place in the Bible that as firstborn from the dead, many will follow. And by the grace of God, I'm one of those. So if he calls me to stand in a hard place, one day I'll follow him. And he has the authority over death itself. So I don't have to be concerned about my life. Second reason it's healthy to have Christ as our ultimate authority. We could have a hundred reasons. I'm just going to give you two. The second reason it's healthy is because that means I'm not the ultimate authority. Let's just say amen to that. Amen. Paul, you are not the ultimate authority. I cannot tell you how healthy that is for you. I cannot tell you how healthy that is for me. It is so great that I'm not the ultimate authority. It is so freeing for me that I'm not the ultimate authority 
The elders are not the ultimate authority. The Pope is not the head of the church. Only Jesus Christ. I'm part of the body. I'm not the head. I'm a messenger, not the Messiah. And this is why it's so critical when you come to church that you're listening to a messenger delivering information directly from the authority. If you come to church and somebody's delivering information that's from somewhere else, I mean, you can get that anywhere. When you come to church, you need, I need, I need information from the authority. I don't need information from Paul. I need information that he's just a conduit of from the, the real person in charge. If any transformative power emanates from this pulpit, it may be delivered by me, but you can be certain it originated from the authority of God's word. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's so healthy to have this as our authority, as Christ is our authority. We're taking our cues together from him. Well, like I said, I could list many other healthy reasons. Let me give you one reason why Christ as head of the church, Christ as the supreme authority is hard to swallow. Jesus is the supreme authority. It's hard to swallow because that means you and I are not the supreme authority. I think the biggest reason it's hard to swallow that Jesus is the authority is because that eliminates you from being your own authority. It eliminates me from being your own authority. Jesus is preeminent. When when Jesus is building his church, I'm going to build my church. He's not looking for people to negotiate with. He's looking for people who are going to be obedient. I mean, when God, imagine, when God calls these people out of Egypt and come to Mount Sinai and say, I've just rescued you from the domain of darkness. Oh, great. Thank you. We can see it visibly. We can experience spiritually. And now he said, and now I'm going to tell you how you should live. Here are the ten main tenets of the faith. They didn't go, you know, we like seven of them. But three of them we don't really like. And there's a couple we'd like to add in. So can we work together on that? No, that, that would be ridiculous. He's the authority. We don't have any idea which way we're going. We've been living in darkness our whole life. Now we've got to have somebody else say, this is the way you should walk in it. Go in this way. We're not here to negotiate. We're just here to obey. And that's very difficult when you'd like to be king yourself. And when sin enters every human heart, that's what it wants to do is to be king. Thomas Jefferson is well known for writing the Declaration of Independence. Not as well known for having a Bible in which he he cut out certain passages he didn't like. See, he thought he could somehow negotiate. Here's some parts that I agree with. Here's some parts that I don't agree with. And this is so important in our day. If Jesus is the creator, if he's the sustainer of the universe, if he's preeminent... 
if the book of Revelation can be trusted and that one day we will see heaven open and standing there before us will be a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. His name is the word of God and the armies of heaven follow him. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which he strikes down the nations. And on his thigh he has a name written king of king and lord of lords. If that's true, then you and I don't get the option to pick and choose the parts of the Bible or the commands of Christ that we like and then discard the ones that we don't. That's not an option. If you pick and choose, then who's the head? You are. Or you might say, well, Jesus is ahead and he kind of needs my help. That's a person with two heads. We call that a monster. One of the big problems in the church is we have a monster. We have a lot of people saying, well, I'd like Jesus to be the head, but, and then they get to insert themselves. I want you to look at chapter 2 as we close here, verse 16 through 19. And you get just a taste. We'll come back to it in a few weeks of what's happening in the church of Colossae. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival, new moon or Sabbath. All these things are shadows. The substance is Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, they're puffed up, reason, without, in a sensuous mind. They're, they're, holding, they're not holding fast to the head. See, see, what was happening in the Colossae is that people were in, in, in infiltrating the church, and they were trying to set themselves up as the judge. That's why he said, don't let somebody pass judgment on you. Some people were coming in from the outside, setting themselves up as an authoritative figure. And because they said things, or maybe they had some position in the society, or maybe they were smarter than everybody else, whatever it was, they were insisting on some kind of legalism. Some kind of old tradition that you had to hold on to if you really want to be considered one of the spiritually elite. Or you had to have some visit, visit by an angel. Or you had to have some great vision if you really were a person who was connected to Christ. And then Paul forcefully rejects that, saying they are puffed up without reason. They've lost connection with the head. See, only the head nourishes the body. Not, not legalistic practices, not angels, not visions. Jesus is the only authoritative, authentic source. Several years ago, I was sitting in a meeting, and someone said this, I won't allow anyone to tell me that my experience wasn't authentic. I won't allow anyone to tell me that my experience wasn't authentic. Now, I'm not saying his experience wasn't authentic. But you have to let somebody say, rule over your experience. Somebody has to have ultimate authority over your experience. 
Somebody has to have ultimate authority over your desires. Somebody has to have ultimate authority over what the culture says is right and wrong. Somebody has to be the head. And, the, and Paul is telling the church, Christ is ahead. These other people that come in from the outside, no matter what kind of vision they have, no matter what kind of experience they have, no matter what kind of practices they have, they're just, they're just clouds without rain. They, they've totally disconnected from the head. They don't have any authority. Christ alone is the head. And if the church, this particular church, or the church universal, if the head gets cut off, then we cease to be a church. We might be a club. We might be a monster. But we're not the church.